Hi there, and welcome to another episode of Sound Stories, an inspirational podcast for creative professionals and storytellers who want to improve their lives at home and at work. I'm Stephanie Cicerelli, your host and co-founder of Voices.com. It's one of the greatest ironies of creative life that the closer you come to achieving mastery, the more likely you are to fall into a rut. The struggle to find inspiration is real. Jonathan D'Souza is a professor of music theory at the Don Wright Faculty of Music at Western University, as well as the author of Music at Hand, Instruments, Bodies, and Cognition, published by Oxford University Press. Over the course of his career, Jonathan has spent years researching how cognitive science, philosophy, and music theory intertwine, and in doing so, has uncovered some very interesting insights into what fuels creativity. Today, he joins us to discuss the creative benefits of what he calls voluntary self-sabotage and gives tips on what you can do, whether you're a novice or a master, to achieve that amazing state called flow. So welcome to the show, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm I'm just tickled pink to have you here, let me say. Uh, for our listeners, um, Jonathan and I went to school together, actually. We were together at the Don Wright Faculty of Music. Yeah, absolutely. You do a lot of research with instruments, but the concept of a creative and their tool can apply across many disciplines, you know, from writers with their keyboards to video producers and their cameras. So what do you find when you analyze someone who has used their creative tool for a long time or even achieved mastery? Yeah, I think a lot of the time we have this idea of creativity that, um, you know, the kind of ideas uh, come magically from outer space or they just kind of magically arise and then we simply use our tools our instruments to express something that's preformed or prefabricated um, and uh, in my studies of uh, musical instrumentalists where the creativity often happens is not so much in expressing something that's fully formed but it's a kind of dialogue with your tools it's a kind of back and forth and the resistance that your tools gives you um, uh, the, is actually a key part of the creative process that a lot of the times the, the tool will kind of function as a creative partner or as a source for ideas or as something that frustrates you and uh, a set of problems to be solved and, and that's part of the creative process as well. Um, so for me, the instrument is basically a creative partner and, and that happens at all stages of development, whether you're uh, just starting out and you really have to think about your tool or whether you are at a stage with your tool where the tool starts to disappear. So one of the philosophers I talk about in my book uh, likes to talk about using a hammer. The idea is when you're using the hammer, you shouldn't really be thinking about the hammer. You should be thinking about whatever it is you're building or whatever it is you're doing with the hammer. Uh, so in a sense, the hammer kind of disappears or it it starts to function as an extension of your hand or extension of your body and you focus not on the tool but on the work and if you don't develop that kind of fluency um, it's very hard to do certain things you know to play very fast music for example the notes go by so quickly that I can't consciously think now I'm gonna move my first finger now I'm gonna move my second finger I think that's the same with uh, with any kind of uh, creative practice when you're using your your tools you know, you have to reach that stage where they start to disappear. You know, you don't have to think, I need to, uh, you know, push this button or I need to do this thing. You want, you want all that to kind of back away so you can focus on the big picture. Now that's really interesting because I'm thinking with my background as, as a singer, then if I'm going to sing a song or, or just kind of, you know, speak, I'm not thinking about the placement. 
I'm not thinking about how I'm going to articulate it, maybe even, because I know where the vowel should be and in the consonants and where to take a, a breath and, and where to continue the phrase. So like as a creative person, like regardless of what your skill set is, somehow you've figured out how to make that second nature, how to be like, you know, you just intuitively, instinctively do something. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I love the phrase second nature. Um, you know, that it's this thing that feels natural, that feels normal, but it's actually acquired, right? Uh, so, for example, I, I play the violin, and holding the violin is actually, how to hold it is a very tricky thing to learn, and it's actually kind of ergonomically a kind of weird thing. <laughs> um, but because I've been doing that basically my whole life and spent hours and hours and hours uh, uh, in that position, it feels like the most normal and natural thing in the world to me. Yeah. Oh, I play the violin at one point as well. And, and it is kind of strange for those listening. You remember you, you hold your bow and you got the frog, your thumbs in there and you got your pinky up on the other side and and just cradling it. Right. But but once you've done something over and over again, like an artist holding maybe a pencil or um, it, it would just feel so, so natural and, and just part of what they do. So I, I'm really interested in this. And I wanted to ask you, Jonathan, um, I've noticed that at, at some point in every professional's career, you know, and especially after they've been doing it for a while, you know, they're doing their job for a few years, they can start to develop the feeling that they're in a bit of a rut, you know, they're, they're drained, they're burnt out. Um, why does this happen? And why don't we just keep getting better at writing or playing music or designing or whatever we might be doing? Yeah, I think about this a lot in terms of habit. And habit kind of has two sides to it. The habits you develop, those skills you develop, that's what makes it possible for the tool to disappear because you're used to it, you're comfortable, your hands know what they're doing, right? There's a kind of muscle memory there that you can reach for the, the right thing without having to think about it. Um, so habit really can empower you as, a, as an artist. Uh, but at the same time, um, as things become automatic in habit, then you can also end up doing the same thing over and over. And so then people you know, can feel that that is getting stale or getting repetitive or you know, that you feel like it's becoming mechanical, right? You lose some of the excitement. I mean, a lot of the excitement comes from learning something new, right? A lot of the excitement comes from developing this skill. Um, and if you, you kind of hit a plateau, then, then you kind of can lose that sense of development. Um, so I really think of habit, you know, a lot of the times people are very negative about habit and treat habit, in, you know, as a kind of a bad thing. Um, and I don't think it's all one thing or the other. I think it's a mix. I think habit really empowers us. Uh, but then the flip side is that habit can also uh, limit us. Because the habits have been learned and have been formed in the first place, they're never set in stone. So it is always possible to rework a habit or to relearn or unlearn something that you've learned. Because again, it's not something that's actually a kind of hardwired. It's something that is always uh, potentially changing. As you said, like these are learned behaviors, right? Like right. we've been conditioned to to hold an instrument a certain way or an implement a certain way or maybe even go about a task a certain way. So, you know, when it comes to breaking free from that rut and becoming reinvigorated, we can try a little something that you call self-sabotage. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, so one of the examples I use in the book is a jazz guitarist named Kurt Rosenwinkel. And very successful uh, 
guitarist and composer, and he also plays the piano, a very accomplished guy. Um, but at a certain point, he started to feel like what he was playing to him felt predictable. Um, I mean, as a listener, I don't think it really sounded that predictable. It sounded great to me, but for him, for himself, he felt like he, you know, he knew what it was going to sound like. He, there wasn't that sense of surprise. And uh, so one of his strategies was to retune the strings on his guitar randomly, just to put them all out into some unpredictable tuning and then start playing in that new setup. In a, now, obviously, he wasn't able to play as well, but he felt that it kind of reinvigorated his ability to hear the music because he couldn't always predict what was going to happen. He felt like he was reconnected with the music. Um, and so I talk about this and I talk about some of his music. And the phrase voluntary self-sabotage comes from one of his colleagues who was describing, who was describing this practice and saying it's a way to make yourself into a beginner again. Um, now, of course, the other flip side of it is you're a beginner who's a very, very privileged beginner because you're <laughs> yeah. a beginner who is who is already kind of a world class musician. But still, I think it recaptures that sense of excitement um, and that sense of risk that we can sometimes lose as we become more and more competent. I'm just thinking of Joshua Bell or um, you know Yo-Yo Ma decided to become a self sabotager and uh, they'd be a, an extremely privileged beginner, as you said. Absolutely, and I mean this is these kinds of strategies you do you do see in all kinds of different um, musical and creative uh, contexts. So in terms of Joshua Bell or the violin, there are these pieces um, uh, from the 17th century. Um, that have re, that are for retuned violin, and the music is written so that you it just shows you where to put your fingers. Uh, when you look at the page, it, it kind of looks like nonsense. It doesn't you can't predict the the piece what the melody is going to sound like. But if you put it in that tuning and you put your fingers there, it makes beautiful music. Um, and I've played some of these. It's a very strange feeling. To, uh, to be putting your fingers in these unusual patterns and getting these familiar sounding melodies. And when I put it back into regular tuning, then I, I couldn't play that piece in regular tuning. It's this whole other kind of world within the instrument that you know I wouldn't experience otherwise. Wow, so it's like you enter another world potentially, but you can also like challenge yourself to develop maybe a, a new way of doing something, a different skill, I don't know if maybe someone who draws would try to draw or paint with their opposite hand. Like, I'm just trying to think of some practical sure, way that absolutely. people can try. So, for example, my I have an uncle who's a webcomic artist. So most of his art that he does is digital, and that's his main medium. He's very competent in that medium. He's very uh, experienced with that. Um, but periodically, what he'll do is he'll get out watercolors or he'll get out ink or he'll get out these other things. And he'll do drawings or paintings um, using those media that um, you know are not part of his main everyday creative work. But that's you know that's something to challenge himself, something to um, kind of get out of the you know his kind of usual setup and to develop something a little different. You know, with writing, I mean, a lot of the time, you know, it, it's amazing how different a piece you're working on feels if you print it out 
and you're actually looking at it on the page instead of on the screen. It feels different somehow, right? Mm-hmm. Um, even though when I'm there with my notebook and I say I'm not connected to the internet or I don't have my you know, database of, of info that I need, um, there are limitations there too. There's only so much I can do in that context. I'm not going to switch to make that my normal way of writing. Um, but there can be something challenging and freeing about getting putting yourself a little on edge or a little out of your normal comfort zone. And I completely agree with that, Jonathan, because uh, when I write with my hand, I feel like the thoughts that I'm writing are formed differently Mm -hmm. than when I'm typing with my fingers. And when I'm typing, you know, it's a different kind of flow, a different way. And and I can Google something and and try to get more context around what I'm trying to do. I I can even fix my words really quickly. I don't have to erase them if I've misspelled or want to, you know, stroke something out. It's just a completely different process. And it's good to unplug. And I'm glad that you had mentioned that about just kind of taking yourself away from the technology, if that's part of what your work involves, Mm -hmm. and, and distancing yourself from that, because then you connect with other other neural pathways, I'm guessing, um, where you um, can either learn to do something or, or be in a different state of mind while you're doing it and, and get really different results. Uh, yeah. So one of the ideas that, I, that I'm interested in here is when we kind of sabotage ourselves a little bit, that brings, brings the tool to our mind and to our awareness in a different way, right? So if something goes wrong, you notice the hammer in a way that you don't normally. And same thing when you retune the guitar, you start paying attention to the guitar and in some ways appreciating the guitar a little more. So I think there's this aesthetic side to our tools which can become really clear when we when we kind of engage in this kind of self-sabotage. The guitar isn't just this conduit for expressing my intentions. It's something that's a beautiful object. It's something that I have a kind of intimacy with right? And when I can kind of, if I change the instrument a little bit to make myself more aware of it, it can actually be just very enjoyable. And you can just enjoy your tools, enjoy the feel of the guitar, you know, enjoy whatever it is. And I think this is the same thing with writing. You know, some people, I mean, I I love like fancy pens, right? (laughs) And do I need fancy pens? Well, I, I guess not. But it's just, it's really nice to write with a really nice pen. Right. And there's that aspect of my tool that, um, uh, you know, when you become more aware of it, it can, I think, also increase the enjoyment of the process as well as, you know, as well as kind of changing your product in some way that might be useful to you. It's it's a way to kind of refocus on on when where you're starting is the same thing with, you know, these with typewriters or these kinds of things. I mean, um, it, it seems on some level like, oh, it shouldn't matter. Um, but the feeling of the keys is different. The sound, you know, potentially the smell of the ink, all of these things are part of the experience of making whatever you're, you're making. Um, and I think uh, it can be a great thing sometimes to kind of put yourself off balance and kind of tune into those aspects of what you're doing as well. So the other thing you mentioned was neural connections. Um, And my book does have a lot of psychology in it and even a little bit of neuroscience in it. Um, And I think this is quite interesting. I I mean, I'm always a little bit careful because we can easily overinterpret um, you know, the findings of, of cognitive neuroscience. I mean, the cognitive neuroscientists that I 
collaborate with and, and talk with are often the most skeptical about about applying brain research in everyday life. But when you practice an instrument, one of the things that happens is you develop a connection between your hand and your ear. Basically, you do some kind of action, you practice some kind of movement, and then you, you come to associate that with certain sonic effects. And so there's a kind of translation from your movement, your uh, whatever kind of movement it is, into some kind of artistic effect in the world. So as you, as you start to practice a musical instrument, you, you develop uh, a connection between the auditory parts of your brain and the parts of your brain that are involved with the performance, so motor parts of your brain. It depends instrument to instrument. It's different. So brass players, for example, the, the lip parts of their brain are very connected to their auditory parts of their brain. One of the things that happens when we sabotage ourselves is that we kind of can make those connections rewire a little bit or become more flexible or become more dynamic or something along those lines. Um, and then, of course, there are also specific responses in the brain when you're surprised, when you expect something and then something unusual happens. You, you take notice, right? Because uh, our minds are always tuning into the regularities in our world. We kind of notice when things uh, violate our expectations because we're always trying to kind of predict what's going to happen next. Well, for the creative, Jonathan, who may be putting themselves, him or herself, into this exercise, you know, it might not seem immediately obvious what the payoff is for the pain. Uh, you know, so, right. you know, like, well, what is the actual cognitive benefit of causing this discomfort? Yeah, I mean, I think on some level there are no guarantees, right? And that's part of, partially what makes it interesting. A lot of these things are exercises or uh, things to try out on your own right? And not necessarily things to do in front of an, an audience before you've worked them out. But I think the, the potential benefit from these things is of kind of making something new, renewing your ability to um, kind of connect with what you're doing and bringing some more awareness into places where things had become habitual or things had started to feel automatic. Um, this can also lead into new creative possibilities. Messing things up creatively can open up new possibilities. So another example I talk about uh, is the prepared piano. So this composer, John Cage, uh, he did a lot of dance music and he also did a lot of percussion music. But he found himself in a situation where he wanted to do a percussion score or percussion accompaniment for a dance piece, but all he had was a piano. And he started sticking objects into the piano strings, like, you know, rubber erasers, pieces of wood, screws, these kinds of things. And uh, this transformed the sound of the piano. It, the piano, you could play it on the keys just like normal, use your normal technique, and it'll sound like bells or drums or all these kind of interesting noises coming out of the piano. Um, and this was so successful that he, he ultimately wrote a lot of music for a prepared piano. And you see lots of people using that. I mean, I've seen, you know, indie rock groups, you're kind of on the experimental side of indie rock, at least kind of using this kind of stuff. Um, and there's a whole repertoire for that. It's a, essentially a new instrument that came out of this um, you know, very innovative 
kind of solution to this problem. And I think it nicely, again, kind of balances the kind of habit and surprise, right? We're always kind of looking for that sweet spot so that you can play the piano using your normal piano technique that you've learned, but the sounds you're going to get are going to be something totally new, totally unexpected. You kind of have both sides of habit working for you. You know, we can experiment in little ways here and there that that don't really cost us anything, right? Mm -hmm. But then there are other ones where it's like, oh my gosh, you know, I'm I'm so used to doing something a certain way that I'm like deathly afraid of changing it for fear that I will ruin it, you know? Right. Um, So kind of is there a line where people may fear to tread, I guess, in terms of experimenting with with kind of going too far outside of, of what they're comfortable with in terms of their tool? Yeah, um, that's a very interesting question. I I guess the you know that line is going to be different for for every person. You know, a lot of people, for example, are uncomfortable with something like prepared piano because they're worried it's going to damage their instrument. You know, if you have some kind of expensive piece of equipment, you you don't want to damage that just messing around to see if you can get something new. Now, in actual practice, the people who do prepared piano take very very good care of the pianos and often leave them kind of in better in better repair when they're done with them. Mm-hmm. But there are other pieces. There's a there's a, a a notorious piece by a composer named Anya Lockwood called Piano Burning where they actually burn a piano as part of the thing. I mean, this, you know, this is a a kind of wild thing to do, but I mean people people sometimes feel like the payoff is is uh, you know, creatively is worth it to actually destroy a tool in the process. Um, but, you know, I think everybody is going to, you know, um, uh, have their own boundaries and have their own uh, background that they're bringing into this kind of stuff and, and have to decide for themselves. There's another interesting example here that, that shows how powerful habits can be in these kinds of situations. So there's a whole line of psychology research, really interesting psychology research on what they call altered auditory feedback which is a, something that's quite close to the, these musical examples I'm talking about. So they'll take, uh, they'll take a pianist, bring them into the psychology lab, and have them play a piano that's been set up to do something unusual, something strange. Now, if they set up the piano so that it just plays random notes, constantly, every time you hit a button, it gives a random note, um, people actually perform just fine. Because what you do is you very quickly realize like, oh, these sounds have nothing to do with what I'm playing. And so you just ignore them. Same thing with a silent keyboard. You can play a silent piano. Doesn't really hurt people's performance to not hear the sounds because their their hands know what to do. Your, your habits are strong enough to keep you going through that noise that's coming at you. What's interesting is this. When they do those experiments and they give you a note that's like later or earlier in the melody that you're trying to play, but it comes in the wrong place, that's what really mixes you up. It's when you get a surprise that's somehow related to what you were expecting, but not quite, that's where you kind of uh, get this unusual experience and you know your, your performance is affected. So you know, total chaos probably isn't actually that detrimental, right? Um, it's actually just somewhere on that edge between what's expected and unexpected that all the interesting stuff, kind of comfortable and uncomfortable, happens. And that's really interesting because as you were talking about that, you know, 
flaming pianos aside. Yeah. <laughs> I've got that image is still in my head, this poor burning piano, and hope they don't perform that uh, too often. Um, it's not very often, but it is it is done every once in a while, and apparently it makes amazing sounds when all the strings start to break. Oh, my gosh. I, I, I don't know. I've never <laughs> seen it myself. Oh, so what we're really looking at is kind of the creative cycle. Like, there, there's a lot going on from, you know, just thinking about something and then making it and doing it and sharing it, um, you know, along with the uh, trying something new and the self-sabotage. Just, you know, how do we kind of grow from those experiences, Jonathan, to be able to take all of what was gained from the exercise to kind of bring it back into our own creative process so that we can achieve a more comfortable, natural, second nature way of, of giving that performance? Yeah, I think a lot of the time uh, we're kind of looking for this experience of flow. And there's lots of research about this and lots of people have talked about this. When you're in that kind of flow state, it's a really satisfying place to be working. The thing, so flow uh, happens with a kind of certain combination of difficulty and skill. So you're not going to get that sense of, of flow if things are too easy. And if things are just impossible, you're also not going to get uh, that sense of being in the zone. Again, you want to kind of find a, a kind of sweet spot, somewhere where you're just pushing yourself a little bit past what you would usually be able to do or usually feel, feel comfortable doing. Um, and, and to be at that spot, you also want to draw on the skills you've learned and draw on your expertise very fully. So, that, so it's, it's really when you get something that's challenging, that involves a high level of skill, that's when you're going to get that in-the-zone kind of feeling. Well, well, this is so inspiring, Jonathan. Like, I'm just thinking, what if people don't know how to get to this state of flow? They, they just maybe don't uh, realize it's happening or, or when it is or, or whatnot. Um, just thinking that when it comes to the creative process that we've been talking about, there's a lot of romanticism around what it means to be an artist. So... How do you think that compares to the reality? I think there's often this idea, I think I mentioned earlier, about, you know, that, that ideas just kind of magically come to a creative person and then you just kind of, they're fully formed, you just kind of write it down or put it out, you know, in, into the actual form. There are a million different factors here. Any of those things can be a source of potential. Any of those things can be an obstacle. So it's really just kind of always about navigating and negotiating all of these different things and kind of just being in the midst of of this kind of rich but messy world. Um, you know, that's to me where creativity comes from, not from some kind of disembodied idea, right? Mm -hmm. and, and as part of that, we don't always know what we're doing consciously. I mean, we can't always know what we're doing consciously, right? So, uh, you know, you, you try things, you experiment, you improvise, um, and you know, you kind of find your way through however you do it. I mean, this is also partially, you know, what's exciting about creativity and why, you know, if I, you know, I'm going to uh, create something that's different from the next person, but it's even, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, if I'm going to sit down and, you know, make up some music, it's going to be different today from tomorrow you know, or different depending on what I'm playing or all these things. That unpredictability can be a source of anxiety, but but it really is also, I mean, that's 
that's the great potential, right? Because if everything were overdetermined, if everything were kind of set by your tools, like you can just, you know, do this one thing, um, that's not really very interesting either. Mm-hmm. So I have learned a tremendous amount from you, and it is such a privilege to have you here today, Jonathan. Oh, thank you. It's uh, been a pleasure, really. Do you have a website somewhere you'd like to point us to? Uh, yeah, well, I have a page uh, through the University of Western Ontario, or Western University as it's also called, um, and from there there are uh, uh, there's uh, links to uh, the companion website for my book, which involves uh, has lots of videos of me playing examples from the book and playing different instruments to to illustrate and some motion capture pictures and things like that. So if you if you go to my faculty page at the university, you can link to uh, to those things and um, my YouTube channel and, and all that kind of stuff. And the book is called Music at Hand, Instruments, Bodies, and Cognition. So uh, if you look on Amazon, I know the book is listed yeah, there. Yeah, the book is available on Amazon and you know Oxford University Press, uh, OUP.com is also another great place to get that for sure. Thank you once again, Jonathan D'Souza, for being on our show. My pleasure, thank you. Thank you for tuning in. And if you haven't already done so, I'd like to invite you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, as well as give us a rating. We love hearing from you and gathering your feedback. Once again, I'm your host, Stephanie Cicerelli, and I hope you can join us for our next Sound Stories podcast.